You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and the Canadian Association of Irish Studies have an annual conference, and I know for the last few years they have been unable to get together in person, and I know all of them are anxious to share ideas. One of the keynote speakers at it is Gavin Foster, and Gavin... Gavin is a reviews editor for the Canadian Journal of Irish Studies, and he has focused his research somewhat on the Irish Civil War and society, politics, class, and conflict. And uh, he has also focused on Republican political culture, revolutionary violence, social conflicts, class, and social status. And that is particularly relevant in the Irish story, but I hate to say it, unfortunately, we're beginning to see a little bit of the seeds of it being sown in North America in this day and age with the... uh, political culture. Gavin, thanks a million for coming along for a chat. Great to have you here. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm flattered to be on the radio program. So um, uh, you're, you're doing a keynote on the Civil War at um, CASE at the Canadian Association of Irish Studies. Um, you're, you're not Irish. We can get that from the accent. Um, so what, first of all, grabbed you about Irish history? Right. Well, so, yeah, I often say, you know, I'm an Irish historian from the United States in Canada. Right. So I come at it from a couple of directions. But um, I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, like a a lot of people who come into Irish studies, although certainly not, uh, uh, you know, everybody, but, uh, you know, I have some Irish uh, ancestry. um, So that was perhaps kind of one of the initial seeds of interest. Um, but I suppose what really attracted me to, to Irish studies, and particularly modern Irish history, and even more specific than that, the Irish revolutionary period and Irish republicanism and the, and the Civil War in particular, you know, it has to do with uh, these really kind of fraught questions of, um, you know, uh, national identity and nationalism. And, you know, we know uh, nationalism is a powerful force in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and in, into the 21st century. And I often think of Ireland as a um, as a really important site for the study of nationalism. Um, I'm not a political scientist and uh, I'm a historian. Um, so I'm much more into the um, you know, sort of granular specifics of, of nationalism's history in Ireland. And I often feel like a lot of political science models of nationalism, you know, the, the, the old bifurcation between civic and ethnic nationalism. I kind of feel like Ireland is a place that the devils and complicates all kind of simple uh, models because there's so many manifestations of nationalism and national identity projects, if you will, uh, in modern Irish history. You know, you've got uh, physical force nationalism, you have constitutional versions of nationalism, you have ecumenical versions of nationalism that embrace the Catholic, Protestant, and even various denominations within Protestantism uh, embrace those historical divides. You've got cultural nationalisms, linguistic nationalism. And, um, and so there's a lot of overlap between these, uh, these movements and these, um, these forms of nationalism in Ireland. And I think when you get to the Irish revolutionary period, which is generally speaking what historians call the period from about 1912 to about 1923 or 1924, that decade bookending the First World War, as I say, um, that is really a, a powerful and fascinating moment when a lot of these projects, um, a lot of these movements uh, collide, and um, there's fascinating sort of frisson between them and amongst them. Um, and I think what really attracted me to the study of the Irish Civil War, which is really considered the final phase of that revolutionary process, is that 
in the preceding years, there was a very powerful and effective movement that, broadly speaking, was known as the Sinn Féin movement, right? The, we know today we think of Sinn Féin as a political party, you know, strongest in, the, in uh, Northern Ireland, but has made massive inroads in uh, Southern Irish politics in the last few uh, decades. But Sinn Féin originally was a newspaper, it was an idea, it was a philosophy associated with Arthur Griffith. And of course, it means ourselves, uh, sometimes get us ourselves alone. But it was a movement of self-sufficiency, political, economic, cultural self-sufficiency. Um, but it was predicated on, you know, a notion of the Irish nation that transcended class differences, that transcended regional differences. You know, there's longstanding tensions in Irish history between Dublin and Kerry and, you know, the, the center and periphery between town and country. Um, and, of course, a massive um, historical divide between uh, north and south, um, particularly in the 20th century. And so the concept of Sinn Féin meant to transcend these differences. And so the earlier periods of the Irish Revolution from the time of the of the third Home Rule Bill in 1912, 1913, through the Easter Rising of 1916, through the War of Independence in 1919, 20, and 21, is often remembered, uh, particularly by veterans of that struggle and their, and their um, legatees, if you will, as, you know, a period of great national unity and of a kind of common cause all under the umbrella of Sinn Féin. Um, and it's a powerful uh, story, right? It's um, in, in history, we sometimes call it a, te- a teleological kind of narrative, right? It's a goal. The goal of history is Irish independence in this narrative. And so there's a heavy emphasis on the coming together of people transcending their differences, um, except for that very stubborn uh, divide between nationalists and unionists. But then you get to that final phase of the revolution, the, the Irish Civil War, which is typically dated from about June 1922 to the spring of 1923. But it, there is some kind of... Uh, low-level violence and some uh, in through the rest of 1923. But it's that moment when the nationalist coalition uh, begins to break up over whether or not to accept this compromised settlement with uh, Great Britain. Um, the rhetoric of the revolution, the rhetoric of Sinn Féin, particularly after 1916, was to establish an Irish Republic. And the belief was that the, uh, the Sinn Féin victory in the 1918 general election uh, created a popularly um, mandated republic. And so an underground government that we call Dal Aaron embodied that republic. It was a rhetorical assertion, but as best they could, they tried to supplant the British court system in Ireland. They had an army. They had it called the IRA. They had an executive. They had an assembly that we call, you know, uh, Dal Aaron. And so they tried to supplant um, a British rule in Ireland, uh, the status quo as it was, with this uh, notional or an aspirational republic. And so for a lot of veterans of the revolution and their supporters, Ireland had a popularly um, established republic during the War of Independence. But following a truce with Britain and the negotiation of a, of a treaty, what was given uh, and what was decided on and conceded in those negotiations was that Ireland would not be a 32-county republic, as many revolutionaries had um, hoped for, but it would become a 26-county dominion, a member of the British Commonwealth. And so this didn't uh, live up to the aspirations of many revolutionaries, but it was a sufficient degree, a historic degree of autonomy. Um, and so it was accepted by many other revolutionaries, hence the split. So that's sort of a long roundabout way of getting to the fact that I've always been fascinated, um, in particular, by that moment when um, the differences, ideological, social, political, um, 
regional even, there's uh, plenty of fascinating geographic splits as well, began to really manifest within the Sinn Féin coalition. And then you get the messy business of the Irish Civil War, when, uh, which was, is known in Irish as the, well, to translate it as the War of Friends. Uh, Liam D.C. in, in an unpublished, well, a posthumously published um, account called it Brother Against Brother, you know, so a classic kind of internecine civil war. And so I've been fascinated by that moment that really complicates a lot of nationalist narratives, but that's also seen, and, and necessarily so, as a major sort of fulcrum in Irish history between the pre-revolution and the post-revolutionary independent Irish state. And you can trace a lot of developments in modern Irish society, the political party split between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, go back to the Civil War split, lots of other dynamics as well. And so my early work was really looking at the nature of that split and particularly looking at some of the discourses and debates around the, the social and class differences between pro and anti-treaty supporters in the Civil War. And then since then, in the last number of years, I've been working on a project uh, using oral history interviews with people who um, or the, the children or the grandchildren, the descendants of the Civil War or revolutionary generation. So I've been looking at memories of the Civil War. So I've really tried to approach it from a, as a period of history and then more recently now as a um, as a memory uh, subject, a post memory, the legacies of the conflict. So I've really tried to approach it over kind of a hundred year span. What it uh, what happened in the Civil War period of 1922-23 and then what it's subsequently meant to people. And of course, that question is supreme at this moment that we are at the centenary of the Irish Civil War in 2022-2023. Evan, in your conversation with the descendants, and you talk about the memory, I know growing up in Ireland, it was always recognized that these were Fianna Fáil families or they were Fine Gael families. And it was nearly an inheritance to some degree, I think in the last 25 to 30 years, that inheritance has weakened. And I would have th- thought if you were talking to more recent generations in their memories, they would have been less bonded to to their grandfather or their great-grandfather. Yeah, what I discovered is really, uh, it was a fascinating um, opportunity, first of all, to move out of the archive, right, to move out of looking at documents from the 19 teens and 20s to, you know, sitting across from from people in Ireland. uh, And I did interviews all over, uh, you know, from, you know, I was telling you about Letterkenny and Donegal all the way down to uh, Cove in County Cork and uh, a lot of interviews in North Kerry, which was, of course, a particularly ugly site of uh, civil war violence and Dublin and many were and many other places. And I think what I kind of discovered is that you're, you know, you're absolutely right. There's this old image of civil war politics being inherited that the pro treaty side eventually by the early 1930s kind of was subsumed into the new party formation known as Fine Gael, and then anti-treaty sentiment for the most part, gravitated into De Valera's departure known as Fianna Fáil. Um, and what I discovered is very much so I found families in both of those traditions with a strong Fine Gael and a strong Fianna Fáil identity, going back, as you say, to their grandparents or with, with some older interviewees to their parents um, and aunts and uncles. And so certainly there were those who came of that tradition. Um, some were ver- reflective of those values. Others had questioned them in the course of their own political you know, evolution over the years. Um, but I also found that there's lots of other kind of lesser appreciated strands and streams, right, between just the big party divide. So, for example, in the Fine Gael uh, party, which, you know, we think of broadly as the pro-treaty movement, well, it was a really um, uh, kind of complex 
uh, fairly ideologically diverse uh, coalition in a lot of ways. So, you know, you might have wealthy, strong farmers, right, who went into it maybe for their economic purposes. But then you also had a a whole section of pre-truce IRA figures. I mean, you know, really important people like General Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy and Sean McKeown, the blacksmith of Alan Ali. These were really important figures in the revolutionary struggle who then took the side of uh, the treaty and helped establish the new state. And they brought with them a cohort, a minority, but nonetheless a significant cohort of pre-truce IRA men and uh, of officers who then became, for temporarily at least, the officer class of the Free State Army. A lot of them didn't stick around in the Army, were um, demobilized and very unhappy about not having careers in the Army after that. But so I found that there's this section of um, pro-treaty support that really uh, identifies more with Michael Collins and less with, uh, you know, Willie Cosgrave or Kevin O'Higgins, you know, who maybe were, you could argue, were a tad more um, excited about the prospect of dominion status in the Commonwealth, whereas Collins is associated more with a Republican, even a Fenian kind of tradition. So there are kind of splits there. So there were people who are very proud of maybe their um, revolutionary roots, their grandparents' involvement in the IRA, and, and identify with the pro-treaty tradition because of that allegiance, not so much with all of the political trappings of Fine Gael. Similarly with Fianna Foyle, there's a similar split too. The vast majority of, um, of uh, opponents of the treaty eventually went into, you know, support the Fianna Foyle party. They had the feel of not a political party, but of a political uh, insurgency almost in the late 1920s. You know, De Valera was very good at kind of crafting the early Fianna Foyle party as, you know, kind of above the establishment. And when it did go into government, it, its goal was to radically change the, you know, they went into the state to, you know, uh, refashion the state. So in the, in the early 30s, there were lots of Republican diehards, as they would be known, who were willing to give Fianna Foyle some kind of um, benefit of the doubt that it could change the state from within. But there's a whole tradition of people who and families that didn't go into Fianna Foyle, that saw that as an unacceptable compromise. They would have voted Sinn Féin, which was abstentionist, meaning it never would, you know, would contest these elections and never take these seats. Um, and there's, so there's a big tradition there. Um, as well. And then, of course, there were people who supported the Labour Party, which, you know, sometimes has been called, you know, has been called Ireland's half a party, you know, the two and a half party system in the 20s and 30s. And um, it was pro-treaty, but also could be very critical of the social conservatism of both parties, actually, in the 20s and 30s and beyond. So um, and then, of course, by the time I'm interviewing people uh, in the early 2000s, some of them two generations separated from the Civil War, their politics have moved on into all kinds of there, there would be people who would say that they would never consider voting for the the other party on the civil war split but that didn't necessarily mean that they were completely happy about or had full allegiance to the other side so um and of course irish politics have shifted a lot in the last few years with the rise of of Sinn Féin in the south and uh various independents and um, there's been a kind of splintering and fracturing and of course at this very moment in ireland in in um in the republic of ireland there is the first Fine Gael, Fianna Foyle, you know, coalition government, which uh, Fianna Foyle led, uh, uh, but within coalition with uh, Fine Gael. And of course, uh, for a century, essentially 90 years, commentators have talked about, you know, civil war politics, the pro-anti-treaty divide meant that these two parties would never be, you know, in, in office together. It was usually Fianna Foyle could have a majority government and Fine Gael would have to create some kind of partnership with labor and, and whatever to be in office. 
Well, now, 100 years on, coincidentally, at the centenary, you actually have this coalition. So that would suggest the, the quote unquote end of formal, rigid civil war politics and that the, the differences between these two parties seem to be pretty minimal if they can share office. Um, but uh, yeah, I found a lot of um, people that I interviewed um, had a you know, pretty heterodox kind of combination of political identities. But there was the, the definitely people who came from staunch Finofoil families and people who came from staunch Fine Gael families. But one of the things that I was interested in exploring beyond the sort of political divide is um, you know, some of the local stories around the Civil War and commemorative traditions. And because you, you often hear uh, the, the kind of cliche, and it's rooted in quite a bit of, uh, you know, it's quite accurate to an extent, is all of the silences that uh, suffused and pervaded the Civil War. People didn't talk about it and children grew up without hearing much about it because it was so divisive and uh, so traumatizing in a lot of ways. Uh, so many bitter deeds and, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of conflicts and personal falling outs kind of came from that period that understandably that generation wasn't interested in sharing this with their children and passing on these enmities. That was a phrase that I often heard that parents were keen to not pass along uh, those hatreds. Um, having said that, uh, so I've explored those silences quite a bit. I mean, you can actually study silence, which sounds like a paradox, but, you know, in what ways it wasn't spoken about, where is it missing? But what I, I often found is that Amidst these silences, people did have some stories and they did recall some things. Um, and so and that's the case with a lot of, I think, um, divisive um, kind of fraught moments in history. There's never a, a you know, a, a, a entirely, you know, uh, erasure of this event. You don't have a veil of oblivion stretched across it. You know what you get instead are kind of more furtive expressions of it. And in some cases, really quite fulsome expressions, the Republican tradition, particularly the, the side that um, wouldn't uh, side with Fina Foyle even, they actually have a well-established tradition of, of Civil War commemorationism since 1922 and 1923. And you can see sites all over Ireland in Republican plots and cemeteries, but also at sites of violence, places, places like Bally Seedy outside Tralee or Clash and Milken Caves in North Kerry. And all around the island, there are places where Republicans, both identified with Sinn Féin and Fina Foyle, from the families of um, the victims, they have their tradition of remembrance. It's uh, it's sometimes called kind of a counter memory or a remembering against the, the victorious state. Um, so there's quite a bit of that commemorationism, and then there's lots of stories and lots of um, you know kind of local details that are shared. Sometimes are openly known, but are still spoken about in maybe somewhat hushed tones because the the conflict still um, you know rattles. I think. Uh, you know, the, the conscience in a sense, it, because as I said at the, at the outset of this, I mean, it kind of explodes certain notions of, of national unity and solidarity. Um, and that's why I think it was so particularly upsetting to the revolutionary generation, you know, right when maybe the, 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 their generational aspirations seemed to be within grasp. It was, um, you know, a compromise was made. Others would say had to be made. And it kind of split the the political community. So it has these political, but it also has these um, kind of cultural resonances that I've, I've been interested in studying. About 10 years ago, I had the privilege of attending a conference in Athlone in the barracks, and it was on the Civil War. I was uh, there, yeah. I, I am. Yeah, and, I talk there, yeah. Yes. And um, Paddy Cooney was there, and John Bruton was there. And I talked to both of them. 
And both of them said much the same thing in slightly different ways. But both of them said, I, I put the question to both of them and I said, uh, you know, why now? How, how come a conference now? And both of them basically said, we're actually far enough away from when it happened that we can talk about things without pulling scabs off uh, people's families or things yeah. like that. And that when you talk about the silence, again, I think I was very cognizant that I grew up in an Ireland where things were not talked about. Um, and you didn't know. You had certain inclinations that certain, well, you knew that was a Fianna Fáil family, maybe, or you knew that was a Fine Gael family, maybe. But there was, as you say, a lot of silence. So getting an adequate distance between history, um, recent history in a local environment is necessary in order to be able to explore it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that's a good point. And I, I, I remember that um, that conference well, because it was in Athlone at Custom Barracks, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, in a Custom Barracks, um, there a number of the executions were performed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, General Sean McEwen uh, was a central figure in the, um, the Free State Army Command um, there, the Western Command. And his um, his command was implicated in at various you know, formal executions, but also various acts of violence, such as the... Um, the killing of uh, surrendered uh, Republican fighters in Ben Baldwin in Sligo. So, you know, it was a place really uh, rich with that history to be there in the same spot was, um, was fascinating. I mean, I was struck by the 90th anniversary. What one maybe sort of pragmatic consideration that I was involved in a couple conferences in Ireland around the 90th. And in some ways it kind of jump started the centenary, you know, everybody knew how busy it was going to be at the hundredth. So, you know, get the ball rolling by coming together on the 90th. Um, and as you say, that's, 90, uh, 90 years is pretty far away from, from that moment of history. And, and yet it still very much had these kind of emotional connotations. I mean, I remember being at that conference and at other ones being, um, you know, aware that people in the audience were the sometimes one generation removed from the participants in it. So, you know, when, when I'm speaking of General Sean McKeown as a historical figure, right, uh, who's long since passed, you know, there's there could be somebody in the audience, you know, or similar to Richard Mulcahy or De Valera or Liam Mellows. And and so, um, yes, it's it's far enough away, but the familial connections uh, are are close enough to that. It, it contains that kind of sense of you know that sensitivity. Um, but what's interesting to note is absolutely 100 years on is, is should be more than enough time to study a historical event, assuming archives and, and uh, materials are available. But. Um, you know, when you think about it, you know, there was we're starting to get serious scholarship on the 1916 Easter Rising by the 1960s. Right. The, the 50th anniversary of the Rising was also the moment that kind of, you know, there was beginning to be some kind of revisionist reconsiderations of the legacy of Pierce and, and Connolly and uh, Tom Clark and others. And so, um, you know, really, in many ways, I think the Irish Civil War, as well as partition, which would be that other particularly awkward outcome of, this, of the revolution. Those were the two moments that took longest to really stare in the face. People were, were more comfortable, you know, uh, with developing a, a really rich historiography of the third home rule bill of the great war of 1916 of the war of independence. It's when you get after the truce, as I say, it's the messy end of the, that that was the one that people touched on a little bit later. Uh, uh, because of those uh, sensitivities, but also because of source uh, material. Um, one of the silences around the period is that for a long time, it was difficult to get your hands on sources about the Civil War. Um, I'll give you just a few examples off the top of my head. 
Um, but uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, uh, listeners might be aware, a major project was initiated um, called the Bureau of Military History. And basically, uh, it had cross-party support. So despite the treaty divide, the, the Finnegale and Finnefoil parties, the Department of Defense, archivists were all involved in this big project to collect witness statements by mostly revolutionary veterans, but witnesses to the events of the revolution. And when they put this project together, they were going to collect these. Uh, sometimes they would maybe be recorded and transcribed, but very often people typed up and sent in their accounts. It could be a page. It could be 500 pages, depending upon the person. And when this whole project was initiated, they they wanted accounts from basically 1913, which coincides with the founding of the Irish Volunteers that over time would be called the IRA. So the major body that would be necessary for the military side of the revolution. But they ended it in July 1921, which was the truce, uh, the Anglo-Irish truce, and, and therefore kind of writing out of that archive the negotiations, the treaty split, the civil war, you know, so that's an example of how that event was sort of written out. So when those sources became available to researchers, um, for years, historians could look at the hard copies of those in the military archives in Dublin and the national archives in Dublin. But uh, a number, about 10 years ago, they became fully digitized. And so uh, it's a fascinating uh, collection. It's thousands and thousands of these witness statements, fully accessible in digitized form. A few hundred of them talk of the Civil War, but technically the Civil War was to be written out of that archive, you know, so let's not remember that part of it. Let's just remember the triumphs, you know, in a sense. Um, we know also that when the governments changed in the early 1930s, when Fianna Foyle had enough votes to go into office, this was a major, you know, inversion of the Civil War. The losers of the Civil War are now the political winners in 1932. Within a decade, it's a fascinating kind of turnabout Um and we know that at that moment, uh, it, uh, some documents related to the Civil War that were in possession of the outgoing government were being destroyed, related to executions, related to other kinds of um, decisions that were made in the Civil War. So, you know, there's these kinds of silences and gaps. And then many of the veterans of the period, uh, people like uh, General Richard Mulcahy, uh, who was a supported the treaty, and De Valera, of course, uh, who opposed it, they uh, eventually put their papers into um, into, you know, uh, formal archives uh, held by UCD in Dublin. Um, and uh, for a long time, though, you know, they had a pretty in public had a, had a pretty sensitive relationship to the Civil War. Richard Mulcahy would often refuse to discuss it. I, there's a fascinating moment in the late 1960s when he is invited as an elderly, you know, revolutionary veteran and former politician. He's invited to Trinity College for a the historian, the historical societies kind of debate and they wanted to debate the civil war and the speech he gives is basically telling them we shouldn't be talking about the civil war. We should go back and talk about the, you know, I think the phrase he uses is, is, you know, the um, uh, essentially the, uh, the adamantine unity of the movement before the civil war. He didn't want to be wandering into the bogs of imagination. And, and so he was very resistant to it. And there are, I have other examples too, in the archive where he's rebuffing interview, you know, journalists and authors who want to talk of the civil war. So publicly, there was a kind of a hesitance to speak of it, and therefore, it took a while for scholars to be able to really sink their teeth into bodies of archives. But what I discovered is there's an enormous amount of material there, often buried in the private papers, so they wouldn't have been immediately available, but by the 80s and 90s are becoming available, um, and, uh, and tons of other sources as well in the military archives and in the National Library. And so um, there are missing things, but it took a while, I think, as well to just really to see the whole breadth of materials out there. 
And now what we're what we're dealing with at the centenary, not just with the Civil War, but the whole revolutionary period is, I think, more sources than historians will be able to make sense of for another century, because not only was the Bureau of Military History, those thousands of statements uh, put on the Internet a um, number of years ago, but an even more important in the sense uh, and larger uh, corpus of materials known as the military service pensions. These were pensions that revolutionary veterans and free state army uh, members applied for. And in, in the course of applying for these in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and there's correspondence that goes on to the present day with, you know, um, dependents and the like having to discuss uh, pensions, um, they had to justify the reason for, you know, their application for a pension, which meant detailed uh, accounts of the activities they were involved in. And some of these go on for, you know, hundreds of pages of, of correspondence back and forth over decades. So this material is being put online in digitized form. Um, and there's more and more and more to go through. So we're really kind of just at the cusp of really getting into some of the, the really rich material, um, on the Civil War. So I think there'll be even more potentially coming out, you know, post centenary if, if the readership and the public aren't entirely exhausted. <laughs> uh, by everything that's been out in the last 10 years. You know, ironically, um, I suppose everything you say um, is nearly at the point of repetition, which is, uh, and I say that because, as we said earlier on, you know, here, um, the party that were on the outside has now topped the poll in the north of Ireland. And, um, you know, it's like the spy who came in from the cold. And in a sense, uh, you know, everyone will now look to see uh, is that political environment going to radically uh, fix or, or how is it going to, or is it going to just lead down the road of what may have happened a hundred years earlier somewhere on the south of the border? Um, and the other thing then is when you talk about nationalism and everything else, and we see the rever reverberations in North America and as is down the, in the U.S. in the last four or five years. And we're seeing traces of it here in Canada, where there's an emerging form of um, struggling with national identity with a small group. And, and um, are, do we really learn anything from history is, is the big question. And, that, and we, we, you know, if we learned anything from history, why the hell would stuff be going on the way it is today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot, there's a lot of uh, uh, directions, I guess I could go in with a question like that. I mean, I'm, you know, like you and, and like the listeners, you know, I'm, I'm an observer to the present, right? As a historian, I have certain skills to yeah. um, make sense of the past. Um, I mean, I'm always a little bit skeptical of, you know, historians weighing in on present politics because, you know, what we deal with in the present is is a kind of this complex cocktail uh, between uh, very immediate influences. Right. And then, of course, legacies of the past and where and which ones are more important are always it's always uh, really impossible to to disentangle. Um, but what I, what we could say about what's, you know, going on in Ireland, uh, 100 years on with uh, Sinn Féin, as you say, topping the polls in the recent, uh, Northern Irish and UK election, or at least in the Northern Irish side of it. Um, and that's in a historic, um, outcome. And then, of course, it comes out of, um, years of, of the Sinn Féin party making incredible inroads in electoral politics, um, in the 26 counties, right? In the Republic of Ireland. Um, and so, uh, I think that the thing to consider that's fascinating is, the uh, the Sinn Féin party, you know, goes back to the very beginning of the 20th century. Right. Um, 
And uh, when it was founded, it was this tiny little uh, almost think tank, you might say, a set of followers around Arthur Griffith, who had a set of ideas. Some had enormous influence. Uh, others fell to the wayside. You know, a dual monarchy never got off the ground, but the, the policy of of Irish nationalists running for parliament, but then abstaining from taking their seats and as a sort of a moral boycott of that institution, that was seems like a, a wild idea in uh, 1905, 1906, and seven when it was a recipe for political failure because the vast majority of people were voting for the Irish Parliamentary Party who did take their seats. But of course, by 1918, it was a winning formula for a landslide election. So what you see in in, in Ireland is the 1918 general election was a, a, a significant victory for the Sinn Féin Party running on this abstentionist. Um, platform, and it was the basis then for the creation of the revolutionary underground government. But by the 1920s, Sinn Féin sort of collapsed, um, uh, lost its uh, its support base, it lost its funding and its money, and it became a very small um, uh, party that sort of abstained from the state. And it was the Fine Gael, Fianna Foil sort of parties that were, um, re- you know, uh, dominated the state in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Sinn Féin emerges again, um, as, as exists throughout that period, but on a very small scale. But it's really in the 1970s and 80s, obviously, where Sinn Féin becomes, uh, you know, the political party for republicanism in uh, in the six counties. Um, and there generally was more support for uh, the SDLP, a sort of more moderate nationalism. But the, the support for Sinn Féin or SDLP depended upon conditions and what was going on. Right. And. Uh, one of the things that's happened since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 is that the share of the vote for the SDLP, the more moderate form of northern nationalism, has gone down, and the share of the vote for Sinn Féin has gone up. And then that has culminated in this recent election where Sinn Féin has more votes than any of the other parties, uh, the moderate alliance party, and of course, most importantly, any of the unionist parties. Um, and so this is uh, significant because if we want to trace it to the Civil War period, um, the relationship of the Irish Civil War and the partitioning of Ireland and the creation of Northern Ireland is a very complex question because technically, chronologically, partition preceded the Irish Civil War. Um, you know, basically ever since the first, the, excuse me, the third Home Rule Bill was passed in 1914, but suspended for the duration of the war from that moment, Unionists, particularly Ulster Unionists, where the movement dominated or had the largest numbers, wanted an exclusion, right, or partition. They wanted some form of future partition that that their community wouldn't be part of a home rule Ireland. And so by 1920, the decision of the British government working with these unionists was to exclude six counties from any future kind of settlement. And so the 1920 Government of Ireland Act is really the moment when Ireland was partitioned. It imagined six county establishment and then a 26 county establishment. So um, years ago, Joe Lee, the, the great professor Joe Lee, spoke at the 1916 kind of commemorative conference in Ottawa at the um, Irish embassy there. And he made the really important point um, that the British government, David Lloyd George's government, wasn't really going to sit down at the table and negotiate with Sinn Féin until that northern question, Ulster Unionist demands were met. So that happened before the Civil, uh, the Civil War, even before the treaty was negotiated. So that meant when Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith and the um, Sinn Féin plenipotentiaries went to London to negotiate the treaty, in, in a sense, partition was already a fact on the ground, right? And um, and so the, the settlement really became about the constitutional status of the other 26 counties. So um, 
And then when they debated the treaty in, in Dal Aaron, uh, some uh, academic commentators over the years have said that partition and Northern Ireland and the six counties rarely came up. Uh, one scholar back in the 70s added up all the references and pointed out that uh, there were so few references, which implied that it really wasn't on the minds. The assumption being that there was some kind of general acceptance of partition amongst the revol- revolutionary generation, that they would rather have maybe a republic for part of the island than some lesser settlement for the whole island. That's been highly contested, but that's one perception. And so um, what we're kind of... Uh, uh, stuck within is this view of partition as having a very kind of um, ambiguous relationship to the end of the revolution. There were quite there was quite a bit of anti-partitionist sentiment in the movement, but there was also a kind of pragmatic recognition that it was impossible for the IRA to simultaneously defeat the Craig government in the six counties and you know and and take on um, uh, the question of the treaty in the other counties. And so basically once the civil war broke out between pro and anti-treaty Sinn Féin factions. The IRA efforts to destabilize the six counties kind of collapsed. And, and some of those IRA members actually went into the Free State Army attracted by Collins' promises. Um, so this is all to say that partition can be seen as uh, and has always been seen by the Irish Republican movement as the kind of unfinished business of the revolution. So one camp kind of associated more with the southern nationalism would would see the the you know revolution ending in 1923 and and maybe those those questions resolving themselves by the 1930s with de Valera's Fianna Foyle party getting rid of the more noxious elements of the treaty and a new constitution and then so that kind of revolution is wrapped up by the 1930s but for other members of the republican movement particularly uh, those in the six counties in the north you know the partition and the mutilation as the country, as they see it, is, is still the unfinished business, even 100 years on. And so that so in a sense, you can there have been debates about did the revolution end in 23 or should we see the Northern Irish troubles post 1968, post 69 as a coda, as the as the continuation of that revolution. Um, and so really, the if there is any unfinished business, it would be the status of the six counties. And so that's the kind of terrain we're in now. And again, just as it's fascinating to have the Civil War centenary at the moment that Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle are in coalition government together, it's equally uh, significant that we're having the centenary at the moment that um, Sinn Féin's share of the vote in the North is greatest it's ever been. And they are pledged, you know, within the next five years, as I understand it, to have a unity referendum, right? To, and so that would be uh, that would be the big uh, question. And, and arguably for the Republican movement, the end of partition is the would be the proper end of an Irish revolution. Although, of course, then there are other factions, socialist Republicans, who would have even more, um, or you know, uh, language revivalists and others who would want to see other ends. But so th- this is where you get this collision of the past and the present in ways that you know, uh, as a historian, I can only speak to really more from the historical perspective. But yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to uh, to consider. Um, but I think we have to appreciate the fact that in the South, for a lot of uh, people who came uh, of, you know, from that from that uh, civil war split and traditions, you know, their state, uh, though partitioned, is legitimate. Their army in the, you know, the, the Irish army are the legitimate, um, you know, uh, legacies of the revolution. But, you know, Republicanism split in 1923 in in shards, you might say, and there's different traditions north and south. 
um, on both sides of the treaty split. So it's uh, it's it's extremely complex, but we're still living, I think, with the with the resonances and the and we'll have to see where the, what will happen in the next uh, number of years. Gavin, it's been fascinating, and um, I know all the other speakers at the uh, conference provide a tremendous wealth of history. And uh, you know, while it's not something that um, it's it's not like a concert where we all buy tickets and go. It's it's uh, it tends to be you guys coming together in a small group, but it is so fascinating to be able to share in that. And I do want to thank you for taking the time. Um, I don't think I'd be down there. I'd love to be. I think uh, my agenda has me elsewhere. Uh, but um, yeah, I, as I can't thank you enough for taking the time and sharing your thoughts. And uh, I've learned a huge amount. And thanks, Amelia. Well, thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking about Irish history. Thanks, Austin.